or somebody that sits close to us on a regular basis. Take note of that and try to remember when you go home and have your dinner today. Pray for that person when you say grace. That'll be one way you can be sure you've prayed for those folks today. But it is good to see you. Welcome to the month of March. Who knows what March holds? Ask me April 1st. That's the best way to answer that particular question. But uh, the weatherman does seem to con be convinced that we have some more of the fluffy stuff. Let's hope it's fluffy and not too heavy if we get it this afternoon. But uh, cheer up because spring really is coming and uh, it seems like the storms go on and on and on and that gets a little bit old and it gets taxing and wearing. But uh, it will come to an end and uh, then you'll be complaining about how hot it is in the summertime. So you know how it is. That's, that's just our permanent human condition. You know, we, we always have to complain. Um, I do think the groundhog needs to find a new line of work. It doesn't seem that he uh, is prospering well in the, in the thing he seems to be noted for. And I will have to tell you that next Sunday, if you can be here on time, you've just uh, given some proof of your spirituality. Next Sunday is, to me, one of the most difficult Sundays of the year. I just hate when they do that. And it's okay, I guess, in the fall when you get it back. But on this particular end, it's not very user-friendly. And uh, it'd be fine with me if they'd just leave the thing alone. You know, I, I used to always call it government time. And, uh, but maybe some of you like it. Either way, um, I hope you can remember that. And don't forget to set your clock back the night before. It's really about the only way you're going to get that straight, you know is to do it the night before. Remember, you got to spring forward, and that'll get you here on time next Sunday morning. In Matthew chapter 3, let's look down at one of the verses. We're going to reread that. We will have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into today's message. I want you to notice with me, if you would, again, verse number 14. Would you look down at that one? And there the Bible says this, But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. And then right at the end, I want to draw special attention to this question that he asks of Jesus. And comest thou to me? And comest thou to me? We're going to think about that just a little bit in the message this morning. But for right now, let's ask God's blessing. We'll have a word of prayer because we need the Lord, don't we? And let's uh, let him know that we know that and ask his blessing. Father, we do come into your presence this morning. And Father, we realize as we think of what is said to us in the book of Isaiah in that vision of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we realize, Father, that we are not holy and we need you so desperately. We need you for the forgiveness of our sins. We need you as our personal savior. But beyond this, we realize we need you moment by moment. We need you every hour. We need you in all the decisions of life that we face and all the moments of life that you give us. And in all the tasks of life that you give us to do, we beseech you for the strength. And we've come to worship today. I pray that you will help us to do that. Give us grace, Lord, whereby we may put away from us those things that will maybe concern us this afternoon, later today, or will be a part of the new week, should Jesus tarry. We know, Lord, that to, to come now and to give our hearts to you, that's really what you want. And we need victory, Lord. We need victory over those different things that we could be distracted by. We need victory sometimes over bodily infirmity. And sometimes we come, we're weary. And whatever the situation today, Lord, I just want to ask you that no one will go away without a blessing, that you will give uh, to me uh, liberty and freedom and unction in the preaching of your word today so that it will be practical and warm and helpful to each person who listens. Each of us, as we have already confessed, has needs Sometimes we're unaware of those needs, but we know that we have them. 
And so we pray that you will meet with us today. May no person go away from this service this morning without some sense of your presence, some sense of your blessing, and some sense of the need to walk with you uh, in an even more dedicated way in this new and coming week. Uh, again, Father, we, are, uh, we think about folks uh, that we miss here today, and I pray you give them a special touch, especially those who have been laid aside for some physical reason or some that have had some, something else come up whereby they are providentially hindered. Take care of every need. Restore those folks. And we'll thank you for all that you do. Now be with us, we pray, as we continue on in this service. In Jesus' wonderful and holy name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as much as time as we have to do this, and I don't mean just this morning, I just mean what time we have to to, to address this, but I'd like to begin with you a new series of messages on Sunday morning that really is a companion series to the one that we worked on a little bit together. I know that we didn't get to start that one together, but we got a chance to end that one together. You remember the penetrating questions of Jesus. Now, I'll tell you something that's really fascinating. It, to me, it's a fascinating study to see the questions that Jesus asked because they are powerful, they are probing, penetrating as the title suggests and oftentimes have attached to them quite a lesson that we can glean from them. But you know, the converse of this is also true. Did you know that there were many people who asked Jesus questions? And that's a really interesting thing because now we find ourselves in that boat. We're among the many people when you think about it. And so I like to title this series, They Asked Him This. That's kind of an intriguing thought. If you had the opportunity to ask Jesus a question today, what would it be? And you can probably think of lots of things. Don't, don't get out your pencil and pen or you'll be writing these things down until the end of the service and then you won't be able to concentrate on the one that's here. But, you know, it's an interesting thing when you look into the Gospels and you, you begin to compile uh, the material that would comprise what we might be looking at here. It's extensive, just as the other one is, and you have to sort of be somewhat selective, but really kind of interesting to notice. One of the first things you find out is probably... Probably, if you were looking to determine who asked Jesus, in the Gospels at least, insofar as the questions that we have in the Gospels, what's recorded, who asked Jesus the most questions? And you know, it's probably the disciples. And that makes me feel good. Because every time you look at the disciples, you just, you know, you think of yourselves. And I, 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 I've told you this before, I really have never cared for preachers that make fun of Peter, or really other people in the Bible for that matter, because really when you're looking at Peter, um, maybe in one of his uh, moments that's not the greatest, you're just looking at yourself, probably looking at yourself as worse, really. And uh, so when the disciples asked questions, they were just like you and me. And many times they asked Jesus things that you or I, had we been on the scene at the time, we probably would have been curious about those things too. And I think when you look at those questions, you're going to find many of them that you are curious about and that you have asked in uh, so many different ways you and I have done that ourselves. Probably a second category of uh, quest or people who ask questions of Jesus, maybe kind of coming in second. Don't hold me to this, but you know, you get this distinct impression. Jesus' detractors asked him many questions too. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who wanted to pick and find fault, they many times asked Jesus. And many, many times when you examine those questions, they had to do with fine points of the law or interpretations, these types of things. That all makes sense to us, but there are some of those that are really kind of interesting too. They're revealing, they're instructive. And then you find ordinary people. And I suppose really that's kind of the question or, or where we are this morning because 
John was uh, not so much, not, we don't normally consider John as part of the disciples of Jesus. John had his own disciples and was a unique individual in biblical history. So we don't normally think of him as a, a part of those who followed Jesus, and we don't normally think of him as a part of the Twelve for obvious reasons. But there were many, many people in all walks of life who asked Jesus questions, and they too are often very insightful into human nature. What someone asks... After all, think about Solomon for a moment. God gave him a privilege not too many people get. Ask whatever you want. But in that he asked for wisdom, it was incredibly revealing into his character, right? And God was pleased with it. And he said, for as much as you have not asked long life for yourself, you've not asked wealth or riches for yourself, I'm going to give you this wisdom. It honors me that you being the leader of my people would understand and come to me in humility and ask for wisdom, I'm going to give you those other things as well. So these questions are oftentimes very revealing as to human nature and where people are coming from. This morning, we gotta to get to this so that we don't spend too much time with the introduction, but it is a new series. I wanted just to say a few words about it. I believe the message and the lesson that I would like to derive from this this morning and work towards is one of humility. I want you to think about humility for a moment. I guess we hear an occasional sermon on humility. I don't suppose we hear a lot of sermons on humility. I do know that humility is what it takes to be Christ-like. I do know that to the extent that we are proud and we are not humble, we are not Christ-like, so that gets my attention. I do know that human nature is shot through with pride. If there's any one thing that characterizes fallen human nature, it's pride. Each of us is shot through with it. It doesn't matter whether you're born again or not. Well, it matters. But you understand what I'm saying. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about the new birth, here's what he said. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The two don't mix. They're oil and water. And you and I have two natures if we've been born again. We have that which is new, which is regenerated, which is born after God, after the spirit. That's the new nature, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, the Bible tells us. But the old man is still there, right? How many people have gotten rid of the old man? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I really didn't think so. <laughs> you know, we haven't gotten rid of the old man, have we? I mean, I, that's going to be wonderful, really, when, uh, especially uh, if we can meet Jesus in the air. Won't that be great? It'd be wonderful not to have to, you know, kind of go through the funeral home via the funeral home. But whichever way it works, we're going there. And whichever way it happens, when that happens, whichever of those events happens first, the old man will be no more. That's going to be a great day, isn't it? While we're in this world, we kind of have that struggle, right? And uh, each of us understands what it is to, to struggle against the way the old man is. But just to give you some idea, I think pride is, is something that is so interwoven into the fabric of fallen human nature that it's possible to have it and not know you have it. In fact, I'd say that's probably true some of the time with all of us. We have it and don't know we have it. I had to smile about a story that to me sort of illustrated this a little bit. Um, I'm sure many people, if you're a little older, or if you're not, you maybe have heard someone talk about it, but you'll remember what, 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 for a period of time, really, a number of years ago, was kind of a household name in America, and that was Walter Cronkite. 
Remember him in the CBS Evening News? And he always signed off the CBS Evening News with, and that's the way it is. And then he would give the date. Walter Cronkite. Well, of course, if you're in that role, I wasn't talking about Dan, I'd rather not. But uh, anyway, Walter Cronkite. You know, if you're in that role, um, people know you, right? I mean, it used to be in those days, I mean, you hardly missed watching the news. And uh, people would know that name. They would know him as an individual. So one day he was out sailing. Uh, in Connecticut on the Mystic River with his wife and uh, he was sailing along and uh, the, this particular river uh, along the course where they were going was kind of known for a spot, few spots in it that had some very tricky turns and, and some shallow water and if you know anything about a sailboat, particularly if it has any size to it, you have to be concerned about that because um, you, know, you have the center of the boat as the, as the, whatever the technical name for that is, it just ran away from me that fast. But, if you're not careful and don't get that thing pulled up in time, I mean, you can have real issues there with, with shallow water. And so uh, they were sailing along, and as they came to one of these bends in the river, around the bend from the opposite direction came a boat with a number of young people in it, and they were waving and, and they were shouting something. And Walter Cronkite looked at them and just kind of uh, got a smile on his face and said, uh, uh, acknowledged them and waved back to them. and. His wife looked at him and she said, do you know what they were saying? He said, uh, well, I assume they were saying, hello, Walter, hello, Walter. And she said, no, they weren't saying, hello, Walter. They were saying, low water, low water. <laughs> that is sort of typical, I think, of how pride can be there sometimes and we don't even know it. We're going to look at two thoughts in this this morning. First of all, there's hesitancy. There's hesitancy on John's part. That's really in our text, and it's what forms and the basis for this question, if you look at thou again, and comest thou to me. Um, hesitancy. And before we really get to the lesson of humility, we have to deal with this because it's the key, really, I think, to unlocking where we need to go with this and, and the message that's at hand. Hesitancy. Kind of interesting. So ponder this with me for a few moments. Why did John hesitate? Well, first of all, we can say this. We can say, just as a, a point of biblical interest, that all four of the Gospels do record or give some reference or record to uh, Jesus being baptized by John, John the Baptist. Um, some we have more information than others. In, in some cases, whether it may just be a record of it, that it happened. In other cases, we may get a little bit more detail about it. But Matthew, and the reason that I've chosen this particular place is Matthew is the only one that has this question. And the reason that Matthew is the only one that has this question is because Matthew is the only one who records this interaction between John and Jesus as to what happened. In no other gospel do we have this conversation that's recorded here that's taking place between John and Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if hesitancy is a strong enough word. When you get to this, it's almost as if when John looks up and sees Jesus coming, he is surprised, if not shocked, by the fact that Jesus would be coming to his baptism. And this is where uh, a good commentary or perhaps even a knowledge of the original language can really uh, yield some color on this because when we look at verse number 14, uh, the first thing that we read in verse number 14 is that, but John forbade him, saying. Well, 
when we look at this, um, it's kind of interesting to notice that what you have here is really, I mean, the translation of it is fine, but what you have here is it's rendered in such a way that it sounds like a simple act in the past. John forbade him. John may have spoken to him and said one thing, when in reality what we've got here is the imperfect tense in Greek, and when you uh, have that situation occurring, Greek tenses have a way of doing something that English tenses don't emphasize as much, and that is they emphasize the type of action that's going on. So when you have an imperfect tense like this as, a, as, a, as comparative to what, what would be the aorist tense, where you'd have simply just a simple act in the past, and that's what that would call your attention to, this one is ongoing action in the past. And what it tends to indicate is how you would literally bring that out in a translation would be to say, but John was forbidding him. John went on forbidding him, or probably the way, in, in the way we speak today, to bring out the significance of this, to really bring out the significance of this color, would simply be to say something like this, but John was trying to prevent him. And it's interesting too then when we look at the actual word that's translated forbade. Koluo in Greek is to forbid, it's to prevent, it's to hinder. So we have a good translation, no problem with the way the word is rendered. What's interesting, though, is this particular word is an intensive form. It occurs only here in the New Testament. And again, this is a technicality, and the only reason I say these things is I just want you to know I'm not making them up. But when Greek wants to do that, oftentimes with a verb, to make it stronger in some particular sense, it will simply add a preposition onto the front of the word. So instead of having the simple form kaluo, which is relatively common in the New Testament, that is to say it's not uncommon, you have this diakoluo is the word that's used here. That preposition is added onto the front of it. So it, it, it emphasizes that this is a pretty strong action on John's part. He really, he sees this, he takes exception. It doesn't seem appropriate. It doesn't seem fitting, fitting to him. And he was trying to prevent Jesus from coming to the baptism and being baptized by him. So why? Okay, so here's where we need to stop, and I think we can suggest three things if we stop and really think about them for a moment. This is where we kind of get the opportunity to get into the text and figure out what's really going on in the text. The first of these, and once you hear these, if you, even if you just catch a part of what I'm saying, I think this will make a lot of sense to you. First of all, you have to consider the nature of John's baptism. Our question right now is, why did John say to Jesus, and you're coming to me? Why was he surprised? Why was he trying to hinder or prevent Jesus from being baptized? What was the nature of John's baptism? Well, you can't miss it really if you read the whole chapter because we're told this at least three times, and if you add the other verse to it, four times, and it's a baptism of repentance, remember? I mean, John was there to call the nation back to God in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So if you look at chapter 3 and earlier in the chapter, I'd like you to see these verses, chapter 3, verse 2. Well, we'll read verse 1, but it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was his message? It says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. John had a distinct consciousness, more on this in a moment, as to who he was in biblical history, the person that he was, and what his mission was. John understood that. So his mission was to call the nation back to God in a revivalist type of a preacher. He, he was there to call people back to God to uh, have prepare 
the way of the Lord, to make his path straight, as it says in Isaiah chapter number 40. And then if we drop down later in the chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, look, and it says, There went out many, then went out many unto him, Jerusalem and, and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan. What's that say? Confessing their sins. So the word repentance isn't used here, but these, these are like uh, two sides of a coin. If a person is repentant, he tends to be ready to acknowledge his sins, ready to acknowledge what's wrong, ready to acknowledge what needs to be made right with God. And that's what this baptism was about. Now drop down to verse 8. And he sees then in verse number 7 the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. And he's not shocked at that. He's more displeased with that because in verse 8 he says, Bring forth fruits, therefore meet for repentance. Wonderful to see you folks at our service today. Wonderful to have you folks come to this baptism, if you really mean it from your heart, if this isn't just show, if you're not just paying lip service. That's kind of what's going on here. He's challenging them that the inner condition of their heart match what they're outwardly professing by coming to his baptism. So. He goes kind of hard on them, calls them a generation of vipers. That's, that's pretty good. Pretty strong preaching, wouldn't you say? Then we drop down a little bit later in the chapter and find the third reference to repentance, verse number 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So it was a baptism of repentance. That much is clear. You just can't miss that. And I think the way we have to understand and interpret this phrase in verse number 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. And the idea here is, I think, in view of repentance. That, see, that was the very question that John had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm not sure that I really see anything here matching up. These other people are coming confessing their sins. There's outward evidence that this is genuine on their parts that God has spoken to their hearts, and now they come, and this baptism is an outward signification of what's taken place in their hearts. He doesn't have any problem calling on the carpet people he doesn't feel are in compliance with that. So a baptism in view of repentance is the idea, God doing the work in the heart as a result of the preaching, and then some response to that taking place, an outward profession of that uh, being... Uh, with the baptism. So the nature of this baptism was all about repentance. Do you begin to see where this is leading? Okay, secondly, consider this. Who is John and John does, does John know who he is? And the answer to that question is yes, he knows who he is. And the other answer to the question, since it had two parts, is, is that he clearly recognized his calling as the messianic forerunner whose mission was to prepare people by his preaching for the coming of Jesus. That's what we just got done reading in verses 1 and 2. Repent, his message was, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. See, this is not some nebulous thing. This is not like preaching that Jesus is coming again someday. John was making a definite statement. He was saying something is happening. Something definite is taking place. The kingdom of heaven not will draw near. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. 
That's the force behind our translation in our version here, at hand, has drawn near. Something's happened with effects right up into this present day. What is that? Well, he was called, but Jesus was on the scene, right? And so he was calling people back to God, and he, he, he had a distinct awareness that he was that person. Now, we've already seen it in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, but go with me to John chapter 1. And if you have any kind of a pen or a piece of paper or something that you can mark John 1, we'll go back here a few times, but I, I think you really, this is the best place to go to see what John knew about himself and what he understood of his mission because John chapter 1, verse 19 records, this is the record of John. This is what John had to say. John 1, 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Now let's pause. Did they have a right to do that? Yeah, they did. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they, had, they were charged with the spiritual welfare of the nation, however well or unwell they carried that out. They were. So if a man was coming on the scene and preaching, they, they had a valid interest in that. Well, listen to how he answers the question. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. So you can cross that off your list. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elijah? And he saith unto them, I am not. Now, they knew from Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah was predicted to come before that great and notable day of the Lord. He said, I'm not that person either. Art thou that prophet? That comes from Deuteronomy, and that's a messianic reference. How clearly they all understood of all of that, but he said, no, I'm not that person either. And they said unto them, well, who are you then? That's, you know, he ruled out all these. Who are you then? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? That's a great question. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Right? So he had a consciousness that the Messiah was at hand. That his mission involved calling people to repentance in view of the coming of the Lord Jesus and preparing the nation to receive their Messiah. He knew that that was what his mission involved. And thirdly, let's consider this. What about Jesus' identity? What did he know about Jesus? Not asking now what Jesus knew about Jesus, asking what John knew about Jesus. Well, that's interesting too. So if you're still in John chapter 1, we know he, we know you have a little hint here. Just, you can stay right where you are. I just want to call your attention to this. Back in our text, when John says in verse 11 of Matthew 3, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, you get some indication that he really understands something about who Jesus is. But boy, you really get it. It's really brought out in John's gospel. So let's take a look at a few verses. Verse 15 of John chapter 1. John bear witness of him, that is of Jesus, and cried saying, this was he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. But now look how it's phrased here. Look, we pick up this detail as to what he said. For he was before me. All right, this is not a quick trick question. Who was older? Chronologically, who was older? John the Baptist was. Do you know that, right? Because all you have to do is just read the story in Luke chapter 1. He was at least six months older. So Mary went, and it was said this is the sixth month. And then three months later, Jesus was born. So, so somewhere between, somewhere in the vicinity of a year maybe, I mean, if we just want to use very round terms, 
So what was he talking about he was before me? Well, a whole lot more than physical age, right? He, he has this understanding. That's what this implies. Don't miss that. That's kind of a, a pregnant verse when that is said there. Um, then drop down to verse 27 in the same chapter. Um, it says this, he it, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe, shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. So again, you have this humility, and we're, we're working our way towards this, that's coming out in what he has to say. Look at verse 23, same chapter. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So he, he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He understands something else. Look at verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. So he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He understands that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that his mission is redemptive in nature, that just as the Passover Lamb was given in sacrifice for our sins, that so Jesus was coming on a redemptive mission to take away the sin of the world. We're told that in verse number 29. Look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is before, preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. So this is really revealing because until he sees Jesus, he's not absolutely certain. He simply knows that Jesus is on the scene. Therefore, it says, he says, Therefore I am come baptizing with water, and John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not, but that he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit of God descending and remaining, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. So look at the cumulative weight of all of this. He senses about Jesus, knows something, when he sees Jesus come to his baptism. By the time it's over with, and by the way, John doesn't give us this. We know it there that, that there was also a voice from heaven that declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So when you put all of this together, he knows Jesus is the Messiah. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows Jesus is the Lamb of God. So what was Jesus doing coming to the baptism, if that's true? If all that's true, why is Jesus coming to a baptism that is a call to people to repent? Just curious if you might have ever thought of that before. Lots of folks have thought about that, and lots of folks have tried to figure this out and tried to give an appropriate answer to it. And uh, I'd like to tell you the best thing I can uh, can tell you here about this this morning. There's some people who come up with something like this. Well, Jesus was confessing the nation's sins kind of in a similar way to, to Moses or Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 or Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And to the extent to which that's true, we can say good, so far so good, but that's inadequate. It really doesn't bring out the whole sense of what Jesus responds to John when John tries to prevent him, there's something Jesus has to say. And if you look at that down in verse number 15, Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It was when he said that that John relented. It was when he said that that John quit objecting to Jesus coming to his baptism. So what does all that mean? 
Well, as far as that first idea goes, that he was confessing the nation's sin, much like Moses or Ezra or Daniel, that is, acting on their behalf, to the, to the extent to which that goes, it's okay, but it's inadequate. There are other people who say, well, it was proper for any good Jew to be there, and so it was proper for Jesus to be there, and to the extent that that goes, we can nod our, hat, nod our heads a little bit and say, okay, but it's still inadequate. It's better to understand, particularly in the light of what Jesus says in verse 15, that Jesus' appearance here was, well, I'll tell you what the theological word for it is because you hear this all the time, so better to know it, vicarious. How many people know what that word means? I won't make you stand up and say it. Just I'm just curious. Do you know what the word means? Do you feel like you know what the word means? Just slip your hand up a little bit. Okay, good. It just means substitutionary substitutionary. Why you should know that? You know, every day when I was a student at Bob Jones University, undergrad or grad, it didn't really matter, we'd come into chapel and we'd recite the creed. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. The creation of man by the direct act of God. The incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His identification as the Son of God his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of his blood on the cross. Important to know that. What's that mean? If I'm going to say that, that that's what I believe, what am I, it just Jesus died as a substitute. He didn't die because he was a sinner. He died because I'm a sinner. He didn't die bearing my sins, I mean bearing his own sins. He died to bear my sins. Vicarious, substitutionary is what this means. I think that's what's going on in this baptism, and I think that to really derive all the sense of this, Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had no sin of his own to confess. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, they came confessing their sins. Jesus had no sin of his own to confess. So if there's confession going on here, on whose behalf is it? Not his own. But baptism does signify identification, does it not? Like Christian baptism does the very same thing, right? When, when a person is baptized, what is it? We go under the water and we're identified with the burial, the death and burial of Jesus Christ, and we come up out of the water professing that we are also identified with his new life, raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul's phrase from Romans chapter 6. And what we're saying when we're baptized in Christian baptism and we're immersed in water is, this is a picture of salvation, and I'm telling you that I've had this experience. His death was my death. His burial was my burial. His new life is my new life, so that I'm telling you, I might not be here perfect today, but I'm telling you, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I have new life in Christ, and I'm not here doing this today because I'm perfect. I'm here because... He said this would honor him if I would make this public identification with him by water baptism. That, that's what it's all about. Baptism signifies identification. So who is Jesus identifying with? He has no sins of his own to, con to confess, but we do. He has no repentance to make, but we do. And if our sins are put on his account on the cross of Calvary, so that his righteousness, thus it becometh us, thus it is fitting, it's appropriate, is what Jesus was saying. 
if our sins were put on him so that his righteousness could be put on us. Are you with me now? If our sins were put on him so that his righteousness could be placed on us. That's imputation. I'll give you another word. That's imputation. Then it's completely appropriate for Jesus to be baptized because he's identifying with you and me. He's undertaking the mission formally now. The, the, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry is at his baptism. One of the reasons that God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is because now basically Jesus, having already accepted what in eternity he covenanted with the Father to do, comes into this world now in time, takes upon himself human flesh, and signifies now at his baptism, I'm going to go through with it. I'm going straight to the cross, where I will die for the sins of the world. Jesus was the only person who could ever, with a straight face and in honesty, walk up to people and say, which of you convinceth me of sin? The author of the Hebrews puts it this way when he tells us that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Can you finish it yet without? Right. He had no sin. Jesus had no sin of his own. He had no confession to make. He had no repentance to make before God, but we do. And if 2 Corinthians, and if his mission is redemptive in nature, if he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then it's exactly as if Paul, or what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you realize, could I just get you to enter into this for me, with me for a moment this morning? Because if you get even a small grasp of what that is, it'll just thrill your soul. This imputation that we talk about, let me tell you what it is and it isn't by a simple analogy. Let's suppose that somehow you get a bill in the mail. This happens, right, on an all too regular basis. So you get a bill in the mail. So you gotta have some system so that you don't lose those things or don't forget what date they're due or otherwise you know what. Well, let's say it happens. It happens to all of us, I think, once in a while. You know, the power bill or the credit card bill or something like this gets in a stack of papers and you just forget it. Yeah, right, first thing you know, you get a late fee or first thing you know, if you do that a couple times, it turn the current off. Not too good, so, or what happens if you overdraw your account? Oh, you get a charge on that, right? Well, what happened at the cross is not simply Jesus Christ bringing a deficit account. You know, if we acknowledge that we're sinners, we think of ourselves as having a deficit, and we certainly do. But imputation is not just Jesus bringing that balance back up to zero. It's not just Jesus paying our debt. It is that. That's a relief. It's a relief that he's paid our sin debt, but you know what? You can have someone pay your sin debt and still not make it to heaven. Did you know that? 
Because to get into heaven, you have to be righteous. You have to be righteous. It's only the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart who will see God. It's only the holy. It's only the righteous who get to heaven. Not, not just Jesus bringing us back to zero so that we can try again and fall short again. Try again and fall short again. Regardless of how wonderful it is that Jesus has paid that debt in full, and that is wonderful, it's even more wonderful to know that he just deposited the unsearchable riches of Christ into our account, and you can never exhaust it, such that we heard that verse in Sunday school, Brother Lee read that, for of God, who has made unto us, Jesus Christ, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Who is our righteousness? Who is your righteousness today? You? What you've done? What you've accomplished? Who you are? See, it's, it's, it's wonder enough that he would pay our sin debt, but to deposit his righteousness to our account. So that's what you have at Calvary, you know. You have one man dying there, one man in the middle. Think about the man in the middle for a moment. Who is that? Who's in the middle? Jesus in the middle. Not, that's not a trick question. Not, the other ones, I can't, I can't tell you who was on the left or right. Just that there was a thief on either side. The one man in the middle, he has no sin in him. He has no sin in him. We'll come back to him in a moment. Let's say this man over here is the one who repents. He has sin in him. He's a sinner, right? But by the time he speaks to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, he has no sin on him. This man over here, who never repents of his sin, he has sin in him and he has sin on him. What about the guy over here? Sin in him but not on him. Where did it go? Now I come back to Jesus. He has no sin in him, but he has sin on him. Ours. And in exchange... We receive his righteousness. That's, I think, what's going on at the baptism. Now, we hardly have time to really talk about the humility, but I'll just quickly summarize it for you. See, to me, there's an amazing humility going on here. John is not one of these people who puts on airs. And he said it time and time again. In John chapter 1, if you still happen to be there, when these guys sent from Jerusalem this big delegation, they said, who are you? I'm a voice. He didn't say, well, you don't know who I am? You better read Isaiah 40. Now, John never was that type of person. He, he gave the scripture to identify himself as who he was, but he just said, I'm just a voice. He made that statement about, the, the, his, I'm not worthy to unloose his shoe latchet, but the clincher tends to come in John chapter 3. Look there for just a quick moment. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, John 3.26. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Think about that for a moment. How easy is that to accept? John said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because 
of the bridegroom's voice, this my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, who's on display at a wedding? The best man? No. The matron of honor? Not really. Who's on display is the bride and the bridegroom. And John said, I'm just the best man. It, he's the person you need to be looking to. And that's why he was, that's why when it, Jesus came to his baptism, he, he, he just, it was hard. That's, I think, why Peter reacted when Jesus went to wash his feet and said, you're not going to wash my feet. It was that unworthiness he felt. But there's another example, and probably even the greater example than John the Baptist, is that's Jesus himself having already taken to himself the form of a servant. This is, like I say, when he came into the world, he's already taken unto himself the form. He's already laid aside the majesty of heaven. He's already laid aside those robes of glory. Now he comes into this world and accepts the likeness of, 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 of human, sinful human flesh. He accepts that likeness. He appears in the form of a servant. Now he evidences his willingness to embark on this mission that will ultimately end at the cross where he died the death of a criminal. I think you can probably accurately say the cross he got was Barabbas's. Mark tells us this in Mark 15 and verse 28 when it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. He identified with them. But who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Whether it was that or whether it was washing the disciples' feet, he said, I've given you this as an example. The scriptures continually hold up these acts of Jesus as ones of example to us. His death was a whole, about a whole lot more than an example. We understand that. But it was an example. It was an example of ultimate humility. I think we can also take away a quick thought, too, that there are times when God doesn't seem to make sense, but he always knows what he's doing. So to John, it didn't make sense. When Jesus explained it, it made sense. I'm looking forward to, to, to the day when a few things are explained, aren't you? There's a pile of things in this world I don't understand. Faith is accepting those things, knowing that God does, and God orders them, and God works them out for our good and for his glory if we walk with him and we follow him. Beloved, I think, coming back for a moment to the thought at hand, if there is something lacking in Christianity today, if there's something that's lacking in our churches And it's really hard to preach about this because it's, it's just hard. It is. It's just, it's, I think it's humility. The truth of the matter is we are so Corinthian in our attitudes and in our outlook. I'll tell the story as quick as I can before we close. 
There was a young man, I don't think I've told you this story, but it makes an impact on me. There was a young man by the name of Bill. He was attending college in a town where obviously they had a college and uh, he didn't have much background is kind of how you know we might look at it. If you've been around church, he didn't have any background like that. But he got saved while he was in college and he got saved so there was a church across the street from the campus. And all along these folks in the church across the street from the campus had kind of had a burden that what could they do to reach out better to these college kids and have a ministry with them? Well, Bill, not having much background, I mean, he got saved, so he thought, well, let's maybe go to church. So he went across to the church. He didn't really know any better. Like I said, he just didn't have much background. He just kind of went in there how he typically was during his college years. He had kind of wild, must-up hair. He had a T-shirt with some holes. This is a style now, you know. And, of course, jeans that had holes in the appropriate places. And no shoes. He didn't know anything. He just kind of thought he should go over to church. So he walked in to the back of the church. Think of it just like in a church here now. Someone comes through that door in the back, and he starts up the aisle. He's looking for a seat. Well, it was a good crowd. The place was nearly full that day. And so as he walked up the aisle, he got closer and closer to the front looking on each side for a seat, couldn't find a seat. And finally he got, well, first of all, it got like quiet as a funeral home in that church. The closer he got to the front, the quieter it got. The more people in the church kind of started to fidget just a little bit, like what's going to happen. He got nigh onto the front, and he couldn't find a seat anywhere, so he just sat down in the aisle in the, on the floor. About that time, a man who was seated near to the back happened to be a deacon in the church. He was in his 80s, kind of a really dignified type of a guy, silver hair. He had a nice sharp suit on that morning with a tie and uh, just kind of a dignified air to him. And he, he had been a deacon in the church. And he got up and he had a cane and he started to make his way forward down the aisle from the back, close to where Bill had sat on the floor. People kind of, well, well, somebody's got to address this. Somebody's got to deal with this. The old man finally got to the front, didn't say a word, but with great deliberation and some amount of pain, he let himself down on the floor and sat right next to Bill and never said another word. All this whole while, everyone's still spellbound. No one could say anything. The minister didn't say anything. He's watching the whole thing. He becomes so choked up, and finally he overcomes the emotion that he's feeling, and he says to the people this, what I am about to preach, you will never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. Don't see much of that in our churches, do we? And yet, I close with this. Think about this. You can't be close to God without it. Because twice in the New Testament we're told this. 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6. God resisteth the proud. 
but gives grace to the humble. And the 17th century English Puritan said it this way, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. O oh God in heaven, forgive us for the many times that we conduct ourselves in a puffed up manner, 